The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know. If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Public Library, the vast mausoleum designed by some schoolmaster with memories of hard oak, dust, and gloom. There are men who sit day after day, bulwarked by stacks of books, scribbling, scribbling in the little pools of light from the green-shaded lamps on the long oak tables. And you look at them and wonder, what will-o'-the-wisps they are pursuing day after day, year after year? One of them may be writing a history of dentistry in America, another studying explosives in order to blow up the world, a third gathering evidence that Shakespeare wrote the Bible. Their faces are pale and grim. The only cheerful people in that place are those who do not read the books, but only handle them as they come from the dumb waiter and set them on the counter like moldy slabs of beef. Those who sit at the long tables day after day are dedicated men. Some of them are brave men. There is death in old books from the stacks of a great library. The dust that impregnates their pages is death and darkness. The dust says, these are books that no one has opened for 20, 50, 80 years. And when you have written your book, it too will gather dust. White book dust, bone dust, garden dirt, and axle greased are clean in comparison. They are living and unctuous, rubbed into the skin, they do good. The dust of books causes blains and hangnails. Ingested, it provokes dyspepsia, flatulence, and heartburn. In the lungs, it is cancerous. 
Who would not choose if he could to sit chained to an oar in a Roman galley, in the sunlight and salt air rather than in this sunless crypt where in the years from 1905 to 1920 Charles Fort sat. Many people must have wondered why he was here behind his tall stacks of books, but one does not ask. Perhaps there is another like him there today, silent and determined under the green shaded lamp. Charles Fort was an American writer and researcher who specialized in anomalous phenomena. R. Buckminster Fuller said that Charles Fort was convinced that there is a great deal going on in our universe which man has not yet been able to explain. He was of course right. And today's guest would certainly agree with Bucky, for he is a modern-day Fortean fellow who reigns supreme with his top-tier podcast, The Higher Side Chats, a podcast that has championed this Fortean perspective for over a decade. The great Greg Carlwood joins me, Mystic Mark, on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast for our list of top five Fortean phenomena. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Greg Carlwood. Flying reptiles with leathery wings and long-toothed beaks died out about 100 million years ago, according to establishment scientific opinion. But in the experience of a number of startled French workmen, the last one died in the winter of 1856 in a partially completed railway tunnel between the St. Desier and Nancy lines. In the half-light of the tunnel, something monstrous stumbled forward towards them out of a great boulder of Jurassic limestone they had just split open. It fluttered its wings, croaked, and died at their feet. The creature, whose wingspan was 10 feet 7 inches, had four legs, joined by a membrane like a bat. What should have been feet were long talons, and the mouth was arrayed with sharp teeth. The skin was like black leather, thick and oily. At the nearby town of Gray, the creature was immediately identified by a local student of paleontology as a pterodactyl. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And today on the show, we have a living legend in the podcast community, an inspiration for this show, and someone who I'm really excited to have back on the show for a third time. Last time he was here, he was joined by our mutual friend, Michael Wan. And the first time, he was kind enough to join us way back in the early days of the podcast, the episodes that no one listens to. So without further ado... The great Greg Carlwood from the Higher Side Chats returns to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast from the East Coast. We're in the same time zone this time. What's up, Greg? How are you? Hey, what's happening, man? I can't complain. I love the East Coast so far. Yeah, welcome. Although I'm not too familiar with Florida, I can say a lot of good things about the East Coast. I hope you can too after you spend some more time here, but... Today, I think we have a very special show planned for people. I was inspired by your conversations with Gordon from Rune Soup. I thought, why don't we do something similar but different and have a sort of list where you prepare five topic or five items rather, and I prepare five items. And I decided, given you recently talked to Lon Strickler, who's a very fascinating gentleman, and you've had a couple of other really interesting episodes lately in this realm i figured let's do a 40 in list and you agreed to that so before we get to that tell the folks who might not already be familiar although that is surprising tell them about the higher side chats and uh everything you've had going on lately 
For sure, man. I mean, it's a podcast like any other. This interview-based format is clearly taken off, but I've been doing mine since 2010, and it focuses a lot like your own on conspiracy, paranormal, the occult, and I try to find the best researchers, the best counterculture, anti-establishment guests, and I always read their books and try to do a lot of preparation work so I try to pull out the most interesting things they say. Sometimes when someone's writing a book, they get really into a zone. And on page 86, they say something really outrageous. And maybe they even forgot about it. But those are the things I pull out. And I'm like, so what were you talking about here? And that opens up some really interesting doors that don't always get opened in other interviews where they're just like, so tell me about your book. Mm. What do you think of UFOs? Right. I like to get a lot deeper than that because myself as a fan of this kind of stuff, I've heard all that introductory kind of thing. And so I try to get further down chain than other people might. That's really the goal. I love it. And it's the reason why your show has become a repository for so many of those amazing insights that you would have to read a full book for. And I think you do those authors a great service because I'm sure they sell plenty more books for the great interviews that you uh, invite them to take part in. But yeah, I mean, again, it's an inspiration for me. You've been doing the show since I was in high school. So, you know, way before I even listened to a podcast, but, you know, slowly but surely we've been making our way along. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, your show is a big inspiration here. So it's appreciated. Yeah. Now I do want to ask you, cause you know, you're one of the rare people who have had a sort of paranormal encounter that you really don't hear many others, say for a few special areas, maybe in the in Europe, you have more stories of this, but you have an encounter with what some might deem an elf or dwarf or a little being. I mean, this is a unique cryptid to come across. Would you mind telling us that story before we get into our list? Sure. I mean, really, I have just a very small handful of brief stories from the conspiracy paranormal realm. I almost got kidnapped as a kid, which allowed me to see that, oh, that does happen. But on the paranormal side, I even started the show saying that I'd never really seen anything weird because you hear such amazing stories from the guests. It's like, well, I wouldn't say I saw anything like that. It was very brief. But when I was in kindergarten, my parents moved to a new subdivision that was a new development. So it was still kind of woodsy in the area. And we were walking around a cul-de-sac and I looked down at this ravine at the edge of the woods and I saw this thing. And as soon as I saw it, it had this kind of hunched back way of standing and it looked up at me like it had immediately saw that I saw it. And I said to my parents who weren't far away, Hey, uh, come here. There's a weird bear thing down there. And I was a kid. I just w looked at this object, this being, and went to the nearest thing in my mental Rolodex, which was a bear because of that kind of hunched over frame and it's dark color. And then my parents just laughed because there are no bears in Missouri. And it was not uncommon for my parents and I to prank each other. So they're just like, yeah. And then I'm like, they can see I'm getting visibly upset. And I was like, no, it's a weird rhino thing. And I went there because not necessarily the shape of its face, but 
its skin looked leathery as opposed to like a bear with fur. And it did seem kind of large. I mean, it, from a distance, it's hard to say. Uh, the nearest thing I can think of is when people talk about skinwalkers because they can take many different forms. But it had a humanoid shape to it. It was on two legs. And when it looked up and saw me, it just kind of took three or four steps, bounded off, and then disappeared. And I was in tears. I was like so upset that my parents didn't see this because I didn't want to be the only one who saw it. That was really at that point my goal is like, someone else see this, so at least we have this thing together. And I had my parents actually knock on the door of houses right there and asking them if they ever saw anything weird. And of course, no one had any idea what I was talking about. But that was like the only real paranormal thing that has ever happened to me. And it's, I guess, a cryptid of some kind. I wouldn't say it was a dog man. I wouldn't really say it was a shadow being. I've never been able to categorize it, but it seemed like it was something that lived there. Like it seemed like of the landscape and maybe the subdivision was encroaching on its environment, but it was strange. Right, right. And maybe I should correct myself, elf, dwarf, I guess really like sort of an anima of the environment, right? What are these beings called? There's a better word for it. Elemental perhaps. Thank you. Yeah, an elemental. And you've described it in numerous ways, you know, throughout your show, but I can imagine, you know, something like that as you get older can be even more mind boggling because you start to learn more things and maybe the memory fades. Is it still as clear as it was when you saw it as a kid? Like when you think back? Parts of it, it's almost like slides. Like if you were to look at a film reel and you have like a few frames that are in your head, like the turning and looking at me sticks out, the ravine sticks out. I mean, it's fairly memorable. Yeah, I can still picture it pretty easily. And even though my parents didn't see it, they at least know that I saw something that brought me to tears that I described in that way. And now that I'm a lot older, it's like, at least I have that to know it wasn't a dream, <laughs> but it's still very strange. I do sometimes think about retro causality and fate and the fact that I've had such insane success with this show, given that I had basically no resume and was pretty much destined for low income work in retail management hell. And I think about things like me being deaf in one ear that happened when I was three from, they say, meningitis, but you also get a ton of vaccines when you're three. So is that related? Is that part of the story of my fate? The fact that I was almost kidnapped by some guy who was in a flame truck who pulled up in front of my house and was like, hey, come here, kid, and was like just trying to get me near his vehicle. And then I ran inside crying, told my mom about it, the truck sped off. The cops found the guy and said that he was just looking for his kid. His kid was in the neighborhood playing with some other kid and he was trying to find his own son, but didn't know the house exactly. It scared the hell out of me because knowing that the cops found him and that he didn't really get in any kind of trouble made me think he was always going to come back and get me. You know, it was really like sends a kid into a paranoid spiral that like you tell the police because the police are supposed to keep you safe. And then this guy is not going to be <laughs> in any kind of trouble. So it was weird. But there was also one other instance of a sort of messaging. I was on my way to violin lessons and I was, it was before kindergarten and 
I never really wore my seatbelt, which I know is probably not the right thing to say, putting my parents on blast, but you fight your battles when you have a rebellious kid. And something like an insane voice in my head was like, put your seatbelt on right now. And I listened to that. I wouldn't listen to my parents, but this was weird enough that I was like, okay. And almost as soon as I clicked it, boom, my mom gets T-boned, bad accident. I never went to violin lessons again because I, in my weird little kid brain, the accident was like, if I hadn't needed to go to violin lessons, my mom wouldn't have gotten in a car accident. And so I was just like, I'm done. And I wish I could play violin today. It would be a nice skill in my repertoire of almost no skills. But these little things happen. And when you end up hosting a show like this, you think back to your life and you're like, man, I felt pretty mundane. It felt like a suburban middle-class life. But there are little things that happen throughout that speak to something esoteric, something in the cryptozoology realm and something in a straight up child trafficking type of conspiracy realm. So it's all there. And maybe it's not even just me. Maybe most people could point to a handful of experiences in their life that touch on all these areas too. Well, I think most people, it's easy to overlook those strange things that happen to them. And yeah, I'm sure that having those experiences makes it far easier for you to relate to your guests and ask appropriate questions rather than those surface level questions now that you've kind of had a taste of it yourself. I mean, that one story about the kidnapping, I haven't heard that. Maybe you've mentioned that on THC before, but I hadn't heard that before. And yeah, with this whole Sound of Freedom movie out, it definitely feels like an appropriate topic. But what do you think of that? And to maybe go on a little tangent here, because there's been so many conspiracy theories around that movie. I started to wonder if it's all just disinfo to prevent people from trusting the movie. Then I heard on THC recently with Ed Calderon that maybe those this guy Jim Caviezel or the director is being funded by you know some corrupt people in Mexico of all places. I mean, this is kind of an odd situation. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the guy's name is Carlos Slim. That's the one who gets talked about. He's a Mexican billionaire, and Jim Caviezel in an interview. He is just kind of riffing, and he mentions that a lot of it is funded by Carlos Slim, who has done some work with the Clinton Foundation. I believe they even had an organization based in Haiti, which is a big red flag for people who investigate this kind of stuff. I don't know what to make of that aspect of it. I tend to not let progress be the enemy of perfection. I don't really pick apart every little thing the way some other people do in the sense that like, here's the child trafficking movie we have. Is it better to have it or not have it? Is it better that more people are talking about it or not talking about it? Cause you don't get another choice. This is the one we have. So you can pick it apart and say, this is a psyop and it's not helpful. Or you can just take the good side, which is that more people are talking about the real issue of global child trafficking and this is based on a real operation that happened. Have you seen the actual movie? I haven't, but I'm sure it's better than Cuties, so I'd take Sound of Freedom over that any day. <laughs> you know, it's honestly fairly mundane. I was hearing all these things about adrenochrome and it being QAnon adjacent, and there's nothing like that in the movie. Sure, maybe 
some things were said in interviews about the movie when he was just riffing and going off on what he thinks is really going on behind the curtain. But there's nothing about politicians or Hollywood or any kind of real network at international scope. It's a interesting movie. I mean, it kind of is like a lifetime movie. It's not mm. the biggest budget. It's not even super great, but it's really just like cartels kidnap people and cartels sometimes chain kids to the bed and use them for sexual pleasure. Surprise, bad people do really bad things, but it doesn't really get into the realm of, well, this goes into the political world and all that stuff. It's like I say, it's pretty fairly mundane and contained to cartel activity. The most interesting part of the movie is the very beginning where they show how kids can get co-opted into such a thing where there's a little girl and she's a good singer. And the woman who's like in with this whole network, she's a very beautiful woman who once was a uh, Miss America kind of pageant winner. So she's in the network, but she comes across as like super innocent and super like, like she would be a talent scout for Hollywood. So she approaches this little girl's father as a talent scout. And she's like, Hey, we're having our annual talent scout thing right down the street at this address at this office. And he's like, I'm not really into that. I'm just a working class guy trying to raise my two kids. He has another son who wanders in the room. She's like, you should bring him too. And so he gets talked into it basically by this woman and knowing what his daughter's dream is to be a singer. And she's like five. So he takes them to the audition and there's a bunch of other kids there. And she says, okay, we're going to go through these auditions, come back at six o'clock tonight and pick them up. And he's like, okay, it sounds a little weird, but he goes, he comes back at six and there's nothing there. The whole office is gone. There's no signs of anyone. All these kids whose parents brought them to maybe get a chance at being in the arts are just taken and then sold to the cartel. So that's to me the best scene because it shows how manipulative the system can be and how it can capture people that really aren't even trying to get into Hollywood or anything like this. And this is, I believe it's in Colombia or Honduras or something. So like, it's not even like it's in LA, but I'm sure that stuff happens there too. But I think that's the best part of the movie is just showing this dad's mind getting blown. Like I wasn't even trying to get my kids into this kind of world. You showed up at my doorstep because you heard my daughter singing in the market. And this is how it's done. Well, and there is some truth to that because at the end of the movie, they show the characters next to the real world person. You know how biopics and true stories sometimes do that. And yeah, they got, Eva Longoria, I think, is the actress. And she looks a lot like the real world woman. So it's like, yes, this is very specifically about a real scenario. So, right. you know, it's not easy to brush off. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's very strange. You know, I feel like maybe that was what the movie was designed to do is to confront people with that the same way this father is confronted, like shocked with this. I mean, really bleak reality. But one thing that I heard about the movie, this could be some tabloid crap, but apparently Jim Caviezel had to do like 300 hours of research and that required him looking at a lot of this pornographic mm -hmm. material, child porn and things like that. So when I heard that, I thought, 
Do you need that to act in this movie? Is that a part of your method acting, you know, Jim Caviezel? I, again, I don't know. That could just be some tabloid thing that they threw out there as disinfo. But, but yeah, that was a little sketchy to me as well. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. But let's get into the, the list here because, you know, I have a couple of very interesting stories and the first one came to me in a very synchronistic way. Go figure, I'm at a used bookstore yesterday, and I find a book by Admiral Richard Byrd titled Little America. And wow. I didn't know that he had written a book. My girlfriend pointed it out to me. I wasn't even looking in that section. It was in the travel section. But in the front of the book, there was a newspaper article pasted. And this is maybe more so a mysterious circumstances, maybe even a true crime, less than a Fordian. But I thought the synchronicity of you coming on the show today and finding this was made it worth mentioning as a Fordian sort of thing. So I'll read the article here. This is from the New Haven Register, Sunday, October 9th, 1988. Baltimore, the son of an Admiral Richard E. Byrd, the polar explorer, has been found dead of malnutrition and dehydration in a warehouse three weeks after he disappeared from a Boston to Washington train, officials said. Richard E. Byrd Jr., 68, left Boston on September 13th to attend a ceremony at National Geographic Society headquarters in Washington, honoring his father with a new stamp. He never arrived and his whereabouts remain a mystery for three weeks. I put him on a train and my wife was supposed to meet him, his son Leverett Bird of Nedham, Massachusetts, told the Baltimore Sun in a story published Saturday. What happened in between, I don't know. It's very strange, this whole thing. We're trying to come to grips with it. He idolized his father. The main focus of his life was to continue what my grandfather had started, to help people who wanted information about him, said Bird, one of four sons. Relatives said Byrd dreamed of establishing a museum in Boston to the Admiral, who in 1926 was one of the first men to fly over the North Pole, and who three years later led an expedition to the South Pole. He had all my grandfather's papers, all the manuscripts, along with Eskimo boots and coats worn by the explorers, Byrd said. Richard E. Byrd Jr. had joined his father on an expedition to the South Pole in the 1940s. Leverett. Bird said his father had suffered from some memory loss but hadn't wandered before. Police said Bird's body was found Monday in a debris-strewn warehouse, clad in workman's clothes and only one shoe, although he had left Boston in a tan shirt and brown pants. The custodian who found his body recalled running him off the property a few weeks earlier and believed him to be a drifter. Police identified Byrd through a Boston Transit Authority identification card pinned to his undershorts. Leverett Byrd said his father, who lived off small trust funds and stock market investments, had a hard time being the son of a famous figure. His whole life was pretty difficult. You can imagine what it was like to be the son of Admiral Byrd. Article over. And I had never heard that Admiral Byrd's son had disappeared like that, and it kind of seems like he was on his way to an important event where maybe people who would have known who he was were expecting him, right? I mean, I'm going to maybe imply some malintent on their part because you heard the part in the newspaper where it says that this man had all of his father's records on him. I wonder if that stuff had been, you know, kept by the family or if something happened to it. But that's very strange to hear that. that yeah. What are your thoughts? 
Well, that's news to me. It is very strange. I thought it was his son or nephew or grandson who released his diary after he died. And that's where a lot of people have a problem with the wilder aspects of the Admiral Byrd story, because why does why wasn't it him who put it out? But he did stop over. Can't remember exactly where Chile, I believe, on his way back from Antarctica, he stopped before he got back to the States in some other country. And he talked on the news and gave an interview about what he saw. And the speculation is that because it was so mind blowing, he knew when he got back, he wouldn't ever be able to talk about it. So that interview that everybody sees is that interview that was from the stopover. One thing that someone did send me recently was an article from Ohio state. This is back from 1996, but it says exactly 70 years after famed explorer Richard Byrd claimed to have been the first to fly over the North Pole, Ohio State University archivists announced that they'd found Byrd's diary, which gives the clearest picture yet of what happened during that famous flight. Obviously, the South Pole flight is considered to be a lot more epic, but I just found that strange. 70 years exactly? Is some kind of ritual going on here? The whole thing is fuzzy and i believe i've been told the rockefellers did some funding of the bird expedition so you know you start to think are we just larping with some kind of op that was thrown out there i don't know i love the bird story i love the hollow earth stuff but i am open-minded enough to think that there could be manipulation a lot of the stories about the hollow earth come from this weird literature structure of a person writing I found this manuscript and the manuscript says, and then it's like a big, long, epic tale of someone who went down to the inner earth. And it's usually filled with exposition about science and all the weird anti-gravitic qualities down there. That is the deal with Edadorfa, the smoky God to an extent, and even Vril the coming race, I believe starts with, this is not my story, but the story of another man. It's a weird structure for all this literature to to take. And maybe it's because it seems more believable when you read. Like maybe it's a weird trick, psychological trick to make something sound more provocative and realistic. It's like a, a trope of fiction, Device, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, like the Blair Witch Project. Like, hey, this is real. It's like, no, it's just a movie. But they got to get you into the mood. And that maybe was how it was done back in the day. But it's always like kind of freemasonic and adjacent like there seems to be an era where they were really trying to seed this idea of a hollow earth but i love all that stuff i want it to be true it's a lot more interesting than a iron ball the center or <laughs> liquid magma right right absolutely i agree i think you're on a pattern there if it's you know even if it's only a literary device used by the author to pull you in it may be hinting at something but i i wonder maybe the hollow earth stuff is sort of a half truth because i wonder maybe not that it's not true but it's being used as a division or a diversion rather because i found this article called celestial horizons of the ancients and it goes through great detail to talk about the maps of the ancient people and how they had mapped out Antarctica. I'm sure you've seen the Piri Reese map. So I wonder maybe that's a part of this. Is there something like a Atlantis-type civilization underneath the ice of the South Pole or the North Pole? And, you know, the truth is it was un 
frozen much more recently than we're told by scientists who some have found orange orange trees and magnolia tree fossils in the North Pole underneath Greenland. So there was yeah. definitely a time when these places were more temperate than they are now. But what do you got for us? What's your number five on the list for our Fortiana events or occurrences? Right. So when you mentioned doing this and the inspiration of something me and Gordon White have done, Gordon White of Rune Soup, he had me on so we could both go through our top 10 conspiracy books of all time. And then he came on my show to do the top 10 paranormal books of all time. And then I recently went back on his show to do the top 10 true health and healing books of all time. And so this kind of arose from that. And I don't really have these ranked. And this is actually one I had as an honorable mention, but I'm going to go over it now because it ties into like the inner earth kind of thing. But I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the GE Kincaid Grand Canyon Expedition, that's why it's not in my top five, because I tried to keep them a little more obscure. But this is from the archaeologist.org. This is their account of it. But really, this is a story that was found from old newspaper archives. For people who don't know, you can go to various websites that have all the old newspapers from the early 1900s in there, and you can search by keyword. So you just start searching underground city, giants all kinds of strange words and you'll get hundreds of articles and then you start reading them and you see patterns and you're like, what the heck is that? The main one everyone talks about is these giant bones being sent back to the Smithsonian who never heard of it. They don't have any record of dozens and dozens of people excavating strange things and sending it back to them, mainly because they're a gatekeeping organization. But this is how the archaeologists described the GE Kincaid story. It says the Grand Canyon was the birthplace of a culture in which, according to an article published in the Gazeta de Arizona on April 5th, 1909, people of cyclopean proportions existed, a civilization that only left us some structures as a testimony of its existence. The article mentions the discovery of a huge subterranean citadel by an explorer named G.E. Kincaid, who accidentally found it while rafting on the Colorado River. It is worth mentioning that Kincaid was a recognized archaeologist and had the financial support of the Smithsonian Institution. Ding, ding, ding. According to their descriptions, the entrance of this mysterious city was at the end of a tunnel that extended for something more than 1,600 meters underground. Kincaid was impressed that the cavern was almost inaccessible. The entrance was about 450 meters under the wall of a steep canyon. The place was in a zone protected by the government and the access was penalized under fine. Another thing to remember. Above a shelf that could not be seen from the river was the entrance to the cave. When I saw the chisel marks on the wall inside the entrance, I got interested. I got my gun and I went in, Kincaid said. The architecture found suggested that the builders of that subterranean city possessed advanced engineering skills. The central axis of the underground city made it a gigantic domed chamber from which radiated passages similar to the radii of a wheel. The walls of the main chamber were adorned with copper weapons and tablets covered with symbols and hieroglyphic characters very similar to those we know in Egypt. Another interesting finding was the discovery of mummified bodies inside the citadel. None of the mummies found were less than eight and a half 
feet tall, and all were wrapped in dark linen. Kincaid said that he had taken photographs of one of them with a flashlight. However, none of these photos were found. Further explorations revealed interesting data on the beliefs of these alleged giants in the city. More than 30 meters from the entrance is a room with a cross-shaped plant several tens of meters long and where an idol was found that could have been the main god of its religious system. He was sitting cross-legged and with the lotus or lily flower in each hand. His face had oriental features as well as the carvings of the cave. This idol had a certain resemblance to Buddha, although the scientists of the time did not finish assuring that it represented that religious cult. (laughs) Interesting, they said Buddhism is a cult. The article also talks about the discovery of ceramics and other artifacts with trademarks having been manufactured in other parts of the world, perhaps a rare mix of cultures that scarcely occurs in archaeological finds. So this discovery would be of of unprecedented importance. The last chamber they found on the exploration was what Kincaid and his partner, Professor S.A. Jordan, called a ceremonial crypt at the end of the Great Hall where they found the mummies. Unfortunately, the article does not give many more details about the discovery, nor are there any official versions or references to this enigmatic subterranean city. The Smithsonian Institute denies having knowledge of the existence of this underground city. So I love that story. A lot of detail in there. This was written in 1909. So it's not like somebody got wind of all this drama and speculation about the Smithsonian and backdated this. Like 1909, you're getting the Smithsonian, you're getting Egyptian artifacts, you're getting mummies of people who are eight feet tall or taller in a big giant underground city in the Grand Canyon that was already blocked off where no one was allowed to go or they'd re- they'd get a fine. So who knew about this originally? A lot of great details there that make that one of my favorite stories. And that's one big component with the Hoover Dam and other dams in that area is that they have flooded certain portions that might reveal these antiquities. And yeah, it is fascinating. I've spoken to uh, many different guests who talked about the Chinese and possibly Phoenician or different African groups all prior to Columbus taking voyages here in America, North and South. And one really fascinating guy up in in Newfoundland, Canada, told me that there is a Buddhist pyramid temple somewhere underneath the lichen and the moss in the Newfoundland forest. And he said it dates back to, I think, around the time of Christ, like right around that era and the Chinese had come through the North Passage and gotten stuck in the ice and had to abandon ship. They survived by kind of integrating with the local people. And yeah, some stories say that there is that temple still there hiding underneath the moss and the lichen on Newfoundland. But so many different weird little places lost to, you know, record that are just waiting for people to find. I mean, one of my favorite topics of research is strange places, you know, weird areas. And I think most people have heard of the Bermuda Triangle, maybe slightly less have heard of the Dragon's Triangle. But let me ask you this, Greg, have you ever heard of the Adriatic Triangle? I've heard the term, but I don't know exactly where it is. So the Adriatic Sea, I didn't know where it was until I heard the term either. It's actually the sea 
east of Italy. So right west of like Czechoslovakia, Serbia, those countries. So apparently in the 70s, the late 70s, there were a bunch of really strange sightings in this area. And I got an article here that talks a little bit about it. It says... An intense wave of UFO sightings were initiated in late October and early November of 1978 when fishermen in the Adriatic Sea first saw unusual craft in and under the water. Many fishermen refused to fish in the waters anymore. They have been scared off by the appearance of pretty pastel green UFOs and orange luminous beams of light which randomly haunt the sea lanes. So... The article goes on to give some more accounts of sightings. I thought might be interesting to read one or two of them. It says, On November 9th, a member of the Italian Coast Guard stationed at Pescara watched a red rocket-shaped UFO with an intense luminosity. Lieutenant Michel Rubino said, It rose up from the surface of the sea with an inclination of almost 45 degrees with respect to the level of the horizon rising in a straight trajectory for some 250 to 300 meters. The incident took place four miles off the coast between Sylvie Marina and Tor Cessans. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. In December, two Air Force officers at Brindisi on the southeastern coast reported an object which had orange and green lights, a naval captain, Piero Gallerano, set out with a crew of five in a Coast Guard ship to investigate. They reported UFO sightings by fishermen six kilometers from land. During the night, his entire crew sighted a luminous red object rise from the sea at an angle of 45 degrees. So I'll stop there. Greg, I mean, lately we've been hearing a lot about UFOs, but what I think is more interesting and it kind of relates possibly to the hollow earth topic are the in-betweens the usos ufos the ones that come out of the water and it seems like places like bermuda triangle dragon's triangle adriatic triangle even the great lakes triangle here in the united states something's going on in the water and i wonder you know what do you think you've spoken to so many researchers and authors who've written about ufos i mean does it seem likely that ufos are underwater that's where their bases are you think that's just the most convenient place to hide well i'm attracted to that idea i really have no no idea but I recently had the legendary Richard Dolan on, and he said he's working on a book about USOs, which is going to be amazing because the level of academic research and depth he puts into a book is always great. So I know it's going to be high level, but we talked a little bit about it. Yeah, it seems like there might be, I don't want to say factories, but some kind of facilities in certain parts. Maybe it's a portal. Who knows where they're really coming from? We only see them kind of breach the surface of the ocean. So is there a base down there or is there a portal down there in which they come out of? Or are they inner earth beings from a previous round of civilization? I'm attracted to that idea because not that I'm a flat earther, but I like the idea that we're in a contained environment. I see a lot of fuckery when it comes to NASA and what they do. It's like, it seems like an embezzlement scheme. They're collecting hundreds of millions of dollars and then Photoshopping some images of what they actually are seeing out there and 
faking some of their missions. Obviously, I think the moon landing is one of the most famous examples of a faked mission. I know they went six times. Look at the footage. That footage isn't real. Did they go with exotic technology they didn't want to disclose? It's possible, but the footage definitely isn't real. So I like the idea. It's provocative that we're in a closed terrarium and there is some kind of other being in a Truman Show type way managing us, watching over us or something. So for that paradigm to exist, the beings would probably be part of this ecosystem. And I like the idea that they come from under the ground. There was this, the other story about the Navy had placed all these acoustic resonators all over the floor of the ocean, kind of like a radar of sorts based on frequency, detecting motion and vibration. And there's been a disclosure, who knows if you can trust it, that these sensors pick up on things moving thousands of miles an hour under the ocean all the time. And they have found a pocket where most of them seem to come from. And it's easier to place sensors and get that kind of data than it is to like literally go and check on something. But there's a lot of noise about this possible facility in this area and that it's active and they don't go near it. And according to crazier stories, it actually moves and it doesn't allow you to get close to it. Who knows? The ocean is a very mysterious place, but I like all that stuff. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. It's really interesting when the thing, a thing like UFO encounters or phenomena intersects with something like ley lines and sacred geography or even just weird places. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that really gets me going, particularly when it comes to like local areas. There's a couple local strange stories. One story that I'll consider an honorable mention because I don't have really anything lengthy to say about it. There's a legend about a rock in New Hampshire that swallows people up if you stand on top of it. It's like a man-eating rock, as the Native Americans call it. And yeah, it could be a portal of some kind, but people allegedly just phase through this rock if they stand on top of it and are never seen again. And Native Americans have mentioned that when people go missing in the area, they say, well, hey, there's some man-eating rocks, so you got to be careful hiking that mountain. Again, that's all I really know about that story. I don't have more details than that, but you, you said we're not ranking them. I'm glad because I didn't have mine ranked either, but what's your next, what's your next story you got for us? All right. So when you mentioned doing this, you gave the example of the Kentucky meat shower. So I did not include that on my list or it would be there because meat raining from the sky is a very odd story. But my first thought was going over some of the guests I've had, William Michael Mott, Joshua Cutchin, even Whitley Strieber. They've told some amazing stories. And then I thought about you know, missing 411 and David Politis. And there are some great stories there. There's that three-year-old boy who was found and they asked him, you know, for people, I'm sure everybody knows missing 411, but they tend to be disappearances in national parks. So a boy went missing. They put out the search party. They searched all over the place. Then the boy was found on the trail where they had been searching already. And it's one of the rare cases or, Maybe I'd say 40% of the cases in his books are people who lived 
and the rest of them are people who are found dead. But the boys talks about a bear creature took care of him for a few days, and he saw his robot grandma in the cave. And this is not even one of the stories on my list. This is just the structure of a story I like. So here's the story, and I don't that that one a lot of people know. If you know Missing 411, it's one of the top stories associated with that. The boy also said that his robot grandma made him poop on a piece of paper. <laughs> right. Weird details, but kids can be imaginative. This, however, according to NBC News, this is the story of Constantinos Philippides, a 49-year-old man from Toronto who went missing. Wednesday, February 7th, 2018, while at a resort at Whiteface Mountain in Williamton, New York. Philippides' friends said they couldn't find him as the resort closed last Wednesday. The Toronto skier originally traveled to Whiteface Mountain for a ski retreat with eight friends. Though his friends decided to end their run early, Philippides went back out for one last run in the early afternoon. He never came back, according to the New York Daily News. Hundreds of volunteers searched for Philippides over the weekend. More than 140 people from the New York State Police, the Department of Homeland Security, and New York State Department of Environmental Conservation looked for Philippides. The group spent a combined 7,000 hours looking for the lost skier. But then Philippides called his wife from a Sacramento airport this weekend. He received medical help and then called the Sacramento police. He was reportedly in good health. Philippides was confused and couldn't answer questions about how he arrived on the other side of the country. Authorities said he was wearing the same clothes, helmet, and gear he was last seen in when he went missing. I don't know how he got there or why he got there, police said. Rightfully so, it's still under investigation. No matter what they discover, it doesn't take away from the nearly 200 people who came together to help. Philippides did, however, remember a nickname he had for his wife when he spoke with her. Authorities will continue to investigate the situation. They are unaware if he had any substance abuse or mental health issues. You got to say that. We understand that there will be speculation and many questions at this time. However, please appreciate that authorities will be conducting a full and thorough investigation into what transpired. And Philippides was a work, someone who worked with the Toronto Fire Department for 28 years. So a pretty robust, competent man. His fire department chief said we were quite concerned. And I had discussions with some of our peers, peer support people on exactly what we could do for our members who were skiing with them. You could imagine the guilt they would have if this turned out to be a tragic event. So another staple of missing 411 stories is people who are found further than they could have traveled in the time in which they went missing. Oftentimes, little kids, like a two-year-old kid found 10 miles up a mountain. Two-year-olds can barely walk. They're not walking up a mountain in the wilderness. So this story I thought was interesting because you're talking about New York to Sacramento. Now, the guy did kind of come to near an airport, airports you don't just wander into, but I thought it was quite strange, and I like that it's a newer story. Sometimes we're going back decades or hundreds of years for these weird stories, and you just don't know. But this is 2018, Department of Homeland Security, the cops, everybody's searching for this guy. I don't think it was a prank. He's still wearing his helmet. I think it might be a case of some kind of portal slippage, 
or something strange like that. But I put that one at number five. Like they're not, they're roughly categorized. I mean, my number one is always my number one, but this one I threw in there because I knew it'd be something a lot of people hadn't heard. And it's a mystery. Absolutely. Yeah. It's reminiscent of a story I believe Chad Stemke told when he was on your podcast. Chad's a friend of mine. We do a show together, but and the gentleman, I, th- I don't think he was skiing. He might have been on the water or j- actually he was a marathon runner. So maybe he was out for a run, but he went from like Wisconsin or Illinois, Michigan, somewhere around the Great Lakes, all the way to Blueberry Mountain in Massachusetts, which is like in the western portion of Massachusetts. And similar occurrence where he wakes up, he's kind of in the middle of nowhere. I think he, he hitchhiked into town and it just so happened that a distant relative who he had, you know, hadn't seen in a long time lived in the town that he phased into. So, you know, go figure. But yeah, very interesting because I found a story that has similar sort of qualities to it, although it's titled, It Happened on a Virginia Highway. Did Harry Joe, did Harry Joe's truck become a UFO? And Harry Joe is a trucker who had this very interesting incident where he just experienced some missing time. So I'm going to read it because it kind of relates to what you just told us. What strange powers lifted an 18-wheel tractor trailer just from outside Winchester, Virginia, and set it down in Fredericksburg, roughly 80 miles away, on or about 10.50 p.m. on Tuesday, August 28, 1979. Was it a truck-turned-UFO? The truck driver, 254-pound Harry Joe Turner, thinks he went along on this strange ride, and there is much in the record to support his outlandish claim. Harry Joe, 28 years old, has the assignment to move his 88-foot long rig with its load of catsup and mustard worth $80,000 by earthly standards on down the road, a routine assignment. But it was it was for Turner, so he says, a trip to worlds he hadn't imagined in his previous 28 years on this globe of rock and clay. Tired and bored and suffering a slight headache, he settled into the cab of his rig in late evening, took a tranquilizer, and a, well... Now I'm now I'm starting to doubt it. I heard the word tranquilizer and I'm like, I don't know about this anymore. And a slug of good old Mountain Dew, a soft drink, and started down that familiar road. Out he went from the Greg's Exxon parking lot, swinging the rig onto Route 50 where it meets Interstate 81. Usually there is a heap of company for drivers on Route 50 thereabouts. Not that night. Turner saw just one car between Winchester and Paris Mountain, but he was not alone. He had at least for a time his CB radio. He was hearing from another good buddy up the road and casually noticing some lightning over the far hills when the sky got really light and my radio started acting up. I fooled with the dials on the CB and the AM radio, but a noise started up and it wouldn't quit and got louder and louder. I couldn't stand it and I cut my hands around my ears, but it got louder and louder until it was a screech. The something grabbed me on a pressure point on my left shoulder. It seemed inhuman, very strong, bionic. I grabbed my thirty-two automatic pistol from behind the seat and fired at it eight times. I screamed, Christ, I can't kill the thing, and then I blacked out. It was like walking through a door and into another room. 
Weirdly, he awoke at the warehouse in Fredericksburg where he was supposed to deliver his goods. He was on the de- he was on the driver's seat. Hold on. Sorry. He was on the death seat, the passenger side of the cab, and oddly, the driver's seat belt remained buckled. Checking around, he found that his money, more than $300 in cash and change, had not been disturbed, but his razor and toothbrush and stuff were all thrown around and his tools had been strewn around the ground outside his rig. He looked at the warehouse clock. It read 3 a.m. That was four hours after he turned on the ignition in Winchester, and his watch read 11.17, less than half an hour from the time he started on a trip that would usually take an hour and a half. So there you have it. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was the tranquilizers he took. This article was written in the 80s, so clearly they didn't think that was a problem to take that before you drive. But then again, I'm not a trucker, so I don't know the struggle. But that's a weird one. I don't know. I mean, Harry Joe is shot at a what seemed like a bionic alien. Yeah. Poor Harry Joe. What a ride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shooting, I mean, common trope, shooting these things and nothing really happens. They seem to not be as solid as we would want in a moment where we're trying to dispatch one. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, it's very odd. And it does seem strange that, you know, for the most part, people walk away from these encounters with a, a very dark sense. Like, I mean... It is a fun topic to talk about this stuff, but rarely do you have people who experience these things and have that kind of, you know, feeling about it, right? I mean, for the most part, it seems like these are pretty scary situations that people find them in. They're they're not, you know, something like fun or something that people want to maybe do again if they had the opportunity, right? Right. Yeah, correct. The feeling of dread is very common. Whitley Strieber says that he thinks these entities, meaning the greys typically, have something to do with what we call death. And I tend to agree because the feelings of dread, the feeling of energy draining from your body, these are common things that people talk about. Most people seem to live through the experience, but Who knows when we find someone who had a sudden heart attack or died in their sleep, you know, was that something that has a deeper story? Perhaps. Right. Like Admiral Byrd's son, you know, ending up in the warehouse there. Callbacks. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what do you got for us? Is this number three we're at on your list? Well, the first one was just kind of, on the G G K G C Kincaid story was just on the list, but we could call this four, but this is really just about spontaneous human combustion. It's not a specific case per se. This book is the best book on it by Larry E. Arnold. It's called a blaze for people who are just listening to the audio. We could say we're talking about the case of Dr. John Irving Bentley from 1966. We could say we're talking about Mary Reeser from 1951. We could even say we're talking about Jack Angel from 1874, one of the few survivors of spontaneous human combustion. Bet people didn't know that happens. But Jack Angel woke up after four days and his hand was burnt to a crisp. His legs were burnt. He had a hole in his chest and nothing was burnt around him. And he wasn't in pain. 
He went to a friend's house to show him the situation and then fainted and woke up in the hospital being treated. But he has no idea what happened. He only knows that he went to sleep on a Monday and woke up on a Thursday or a Friday, four days later. And this is something that I had written off as a weird 90s trope phenomenon. And maybe it's just people falling asleep with cigarettes in their mouths. But that's silly because it's not easy to cremate a human body. It requires temperatures of over 1400 degrees. So something else is going on here. And sometimes the floor around them is burnt. Sometimes there are certain body parts left untouched. I actually think we might be dealing with some kind of Kundalini energy misfire, you know, or chi energy misfire. Maybe these energies, which are in our body, maybe they have some kind of electrostatic ignition. Charles Fort said that he thought we were dealing with a predator who feeds by method of heat and fire. I would say probably not because they're just so rare. They happen once a decade, once every five years, perhaps. But I wanted to show some images from this book. I remember, and as you're showing it, I remember as a kid, I, don't, I was going to ask you, what was it about the 90s that made spontaneous combustion a topic? Maybe it was like a particular event that happened in that time. But I remember Ripley's Believe It or Not had a photo of a woman who had been incinerated in her sofa, and the sofa was completely left, you know, untouched. Right. And for those who are just reading the audio, I am trying to hold up a photo. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't want to get you kicked off YouTube, but you can see that the ground is burnt. The body is burnt to a crisp. And there's just one unharmed leg with a foot still attached. And the a shoe. shoe. Attached. Yeah. And, and the shoe's not even melted or anything. It's just. You can uh... see the guy's walker pretty much intact. Wow. And the other, and that's the case of Dr. Bentley. Not that people really care about putting a name to the burnt image, but you might be talking about this famous one, the woman in the chair. It is just legs, just legs in a chair and a scorched wall behind. That's not a cigarette. That's not, I don't know what that is, but I say because it's so rare, it's most likely something from within the body. And the fact that Jack Angel survived it and there was a hole in his chest, it seems like It came from within. I don't think it's military testing, which has been suggested. I've heard it suggested that plasma beings like uh, aliens, ghosts, spirits, maybe when they pop in and out of existence, they create some kind of hot plasma portal. And maybe occasionally they pop into our reality exactly where someone is sitting. And that person has the effects of spontaneous human combustion. Unclear. But kundalini energy is... I think the most interesting, because when you hear about those accounts of like this really crazy radiant energy that emerges from the body, is it possible that if you don't engage in meditation or kundalini practices that that can well up and in rare cases cause you to explode? (laughs) I think so. I think, yeah, and certainly America had the culture to to suppress those sorts of inklings in a person at certain points in our history, certainly during the 50s, I would imagine. But yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, 
I could be wrong, but I'm almost certain your interview with Larry Arnold, the author of the book you just showed us, coincided. It might have been the same, you know, the next week or the week before your interview with Dr. E. Gregor, Dr. Gregory Little, who wrote a lot about plasma beings with Andrew Collins in one of his recent books. And it, I thought that was funny how those two interviews kind of coincided because you were, I think you even mentioned it, to Little, like, hey, could spontaneous combustion have something to do with this? And I know, you know, that probably isn't planned for, but I, I think as a, an audience member, we love to see those sort of things line up, you know, mm -hmm. and how two guests can kind of synchronistically play into each other's topics. But yeah, I find that the most fascinating angle that there are plasma beings that just like, you know, every now and then they're just speeding through their universe and we just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. You know, the old stories of the ley lines and how they would align their houses so that the door would be open to the ley lines so the fairies can fly through if they needed to. Maybe there's something to that. I'm sure Joshua Cutchin could answer some of those questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just a burnt pixel in our holographic reality. Mm. You're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right, right. And I don't have any examples of like simulation theory type events. Maybe you do. But one thing that kind of sits in the local lore around here in New England particularly New Haven, where Yale University is allegedly the best pizza in the country as well. But there's a sighting of a phantom ship. And I find this kind of interesting because, you know, people often think like, oh, well, UFOs, people only started seeing them recently. Obviously, you look into it further and you find out, no, the Romans had these flying discs, the Chinese saw dragons, the ancient Egyptians saw, you know, whatever they called it in the sky, flying shields or something or other. But in colonial times on the East Coast, in New Haven, they had sent out a ship full of goods, furs and whatnot, and it was really their only hope at surviving as a colony. They had just started within the last decade so they send all their materials off to be sold and hoping to get some money returning. And unfortunately, the ship goes missing. It's never heard from again. And a week into the journey, people look out on the harbor and they see a giant omen of a ship just flying through the clouds. It's and looked exactly like their Lamberton, the, the you know, whatever they called it, the Lamberton ship. So there's, yeah, in, interesting little examples where maybe it wasn't, you know, sci-fi or, you know, but is kind of, it fits the time weirdly. And I think that plays into the plasma being thing where like these, whatever we're seeing, UFOs, cryptids, you know, apparitions, they might have this sort of connection with us mentally to be able to broadcast what we're expecting to see or what we're presuming to see or what would make sense to us. So instead of people seeing flying metal cans going through the sky, they would see flying ships because that's all they knew for vehicles. It probably made more sense than a flying horse. Yeah, I would say so. In terms of stories of some of somewhat holographic nature or something like a time slip, perhaps a dimensional portal peer through. I have this book, you know, I must've been reading some thread one time and they were like, this is a great book full of mysteries. It's just called mysteries of the unexplained It's put out by reader's digest. 
It was a little hard to find. I mean, I think you can still find it, but I couldn't get a new copy. But, you know, on Amazon, you can still get used copies. It is full of really weird stories that you've never heard. And this is just one. It couldn't be on my list of five because it's just too brief. But Victor Goddard of the Royal Air Force was lost. Somewhere over Scotland, a heavy storm had caught him. And now he needed to find a landmark. He eased his Hawker Hart biplane down through the clouds, hoping to find clear weather below him and perhaps to catch a glimpse of Drem, an abandoned airfield that he thought was somewhere in the vicinity. His instincts were good. Drem was not far ahead of him, and from it, he could take new bearings. Then, when he was about a quarter of a mile from the airfield, something extraordinary happened. Suddenly, he wrote later, the area was bathed in an ethereal light as though the sun were shining over a midsummer day. Ethereal light. Plasma, maybe? Drem was not deserted, was not abandoned, and falling into ruin at all. So, sorry, Drem is that airfield. He was looking for this abandoned airfield, and he says now, Drem was not deserted, nor was it abandoned or falling into ruin at all. It was a hive of activity of mechanics and blue overalls at work on yellow planes, all bright in the sunlight. He flew over them at an altitude of no more than 50 feet, a little surprised that no one looked up as his plane went right overhead back into the clouds, now confident in his direction. The year was 1934. In 1934, Drem Airfield was an abandoned ruin. In 1938, with the threat of war growing daily, Drem was reopened as an Air Force flying school, and the color of British training planes changed from silver to yellow. Victor Goddard had flown out of the clouds and briefly four years into the future. Jeez, yeah, and there are tons of weird little stories like that, and they do... I wonder if it is, you know, a fact of the time when people had less maybe knowledge of the rest of the world and aviation was new. But, yeah, there are stories of people who just fly off and end up somewhere else and come back out of time, you know. Have you ever seen the photos of the gentleman that people say is a time traveler? He's got the goggles on and, you know, he looks like he's in like an 1800s type setting and it's an old photo. Sure, it could be faked, but uh, you have this kind of guy who looks like he's like got gelled hair and a slick leather jacket and these kind of aviation goggles. And you have to wonder if that's a case of a guy who maybe wasn't so modern, like maybe circa 1940s or 50s, flies an airplane into some portal and ends up in 1880. Yeah, there's also... photos and video of people using what looks like a smartphone in the Mm. black and white era. And you're like, well, how could that be real? Because where's it even getting a signal from? But there's a lot of strange stuff. And if time travel is ever possible, then people could jump into our timeline from this hypothetical future. Maybe rarely, but I like the idea that people can be out of time I like the idea that just like UFOs, some people outside of mainstream circles have cracked this technology and they're kind of going rogue, doing their own thing from time to time. Just what that's like what I think the Sonora Aero Club was and Charles Delshaw's drawings. I'm so glad Uh, you said that. I was just about to bring that up, like breakaway civilizations is a sort of kind of under this umbrella. And it's funny how much of this stuff 
gets kind of lumped into the UFO general category when really, you know, it might belong somewhere more appropriately in that realm. But here's a story that I thought was worth reading from a gentleman named, well, he goes by the name Chaz of the Dead. You might have seen his podcast or maybe his book. I don't know if he's been on THC yet, though. Paranormal Expeditions Hunt for the Friendship is his book. It's fascinating stuff. He went down to South America and interviewed tons of people. But this story really stood out to me. It says, this story comes from a witness living in New Zealand at the time of writing and who wrote about this account in a letter she sent in 2001. An important thing to note is that this account was not sent to an independent investigators, but was sent to one of the main witnesses we've discussed directly, Ernesto de la Fuente. It was followed up by a UFO group known by the acronym AION, A-I-O-N. The witness herself was originally from Chile and had lived there for 30 years before moving to New Zealand, where her husband works as an industrialist. She had longed to return to the country, and her husband, who was an avid adventurer, had a grand idea, to sail from New Zealand to the long coastline of Chile. The wife of the pair was not as foolhardy and opted to take a plane and meet her husband when he arrived in Chile. The husband prepared a yacht and found a friend who was a professional fisherman willing to partake on the journey. The wife said it was to her surprise when the husband arrived in Chile without any issues. He and his friend had docked on Big Chiloa Island in the city of Quelan. The couple reunited in Santiago and the fishermen returned to New Zealand. The pair traveled back south to Puerto Montt to reboard their yacht and explore the channels of southern Patagonia. The couple was awestruck by the majestic beauty of the untouched waterways. Their boat would sail for hours along the cool channels, blah, blah, blah. One afternoon during their cruise, the couple noticed a nearby island and decided that the small beach looked like a comfortable campsite. They turned up a small channel dividing two islets in an attempt to make it to the beach for an afternoon picnic. They soon realized that the channel was too shallow, and as the tide began to go out, their ship became dangerously close to being stuck on the sand below. They quickly maneuvered the vessel, turned it around, and headed to exit the channel. As they were sailing out of the channel, they noticed a larger yacht crossing in front of the mouth of the small passage. The yacht had the name Mytilus II painted on the side. They adjusted their path so that the two ships wouldn't collide, but the Middleist too was towing a submerged object, and the couple's yacht got stuck onto a cable as they passed behind the ship. This caused some substantial damage to the underside of their ship. The helm was twisted and the propeller was broken. Upon noticing that they had accidentally crippled the nearby sailing ship, the Middleist too stopped and a few of the sailors from the vessel set out on a small rubber dinghy to assist them. Aboard the small small boat were four men. They were quite tall, and they all sported well-trimmed blonde hair. They immediately offered to repair the vessel and asked politely that they not involve Chilean officials. Mm. The wife, being Chilean herself, knew that the government officials of the country could be very corrupt and tend to compl- complicate things, so mm. they happily agreed. They went with two of them aboard the dinghy and returned to the Middle East too while two of them stayed back to work on their yacht. Once aboard, they noticed strange details almost immediately. First, when the people aboard introduced themselves, they immediately noticed the husband's Dutch-sounding surname. So began speaking with the pair in Dutch. 
when they informed them that they were actually from New Zealand, the group of blonde men switched to English. Finally, when they learned the wife was Chilean, they switched back to Spanish. This mastery of a different language is often reported in encounters with the friendship. This is the broader name for the group that people have encountered. Aboard the vessel, they were treated very well. They offered to tow them back to their base for their ship's necessary repairs. The husband asked about the location of the base, and they showed him a small island on their sea chart that was much further south in the Chonos Archipelago. They informed the pair that the journey and subsequent repairs would take several days. The couple, however, only had a few days left before they were due back in New Zealand. They decided it was better to use their backup and outboard motor to take them to the nearest port. The group of blonde strangers seemed seemed pleased at the sound of this idea and promptly offered to pay for all the damages that they had inflicted. They offered the couple a check for the damages, but the wife was suspicious of these strange characters and asked that they be paid in cash. The group said they did not carry enough cash on them, so after some debate and bargaining, they agreed to pay 40% of the damages in cash and they, that they had on them, as well as giving them two large pieces of silver-looking metal material that had been molded in irregular shapes. They told the pair that it was platinum, and they would be able to sell it to cover the rest of the damages. The husband was happy with the arrangement, but the wife much less so. Upon seeing this, one of the group members, who she remembered introducing himself as Gabriel, gave her a third, smaller piece of platinum for her to use as a piece of jewelry. So it goes on to talk about how they ended up selling the platinum, and it was worth like so much more than the yacht damages and some other strange details. But that's just one of many encounters with this group of people who speak multiple languages. They all kind of have this, like, you know, blonde, tall appearance. Some people have reported aliens coinciding or UFOs coinciding with their coming and going. And they're loaded, clearly. They got tons of money. So I, I don't know what's going on in those weird islands down there in the, art, you know, very far south of Argentina and Chile, but it was called the land of the giants. So who knows? They didn't name that by accident. They saw a giant there. I think it was Magellan when he made the first trip around it. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff. I'd never really heard of a breakaway civilization referred to as the friendship, but it makes sense. It's a good term for a secret group who, is just kind of doing their own thing. And when they fuck up, they make it right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's good on them. They at least displayed some integrity or some you know, morals. But uh, yeah, I do recommend that book. You know, there's so much more that we could talk about in just this small amount of time, but it does connect to possibly Nazis and them hiding down there in South America. So maybe there's a reason why they're trying to be as nice as possible and save face and avoid any investigation, right? Yeah. Don't come back here. Don't involve the authorities. We're going to take care of this on the DL. Don't call your insurance company. Let's just work this out between us. Right, right. Here's an untraceable currency, platinum. (laughs) Wow. That's a good one. Well, we got we got some more time here. What do you say? You want to skip past the third one and jump right to the second one? Or do you think we got time for the rest of your list? Well, yeah, let's skip the third one. The third one is just the 
I've never heard it pronounced. I only read it, but the Dyatlov Pass incident, right. I think everybody knows that. We don't need to go over it. I'm not sure if Ds are silent in Russian. I know Gs sometimes are. I've I just watched Bert Kreischer's The Machine, so I should be uh, <laughs> abreast of uh, the Russian language, but we know that story. Some Soviet hikers died in the mountains, and they were found having left their camp in the night, and... Some of them were killed by physical trauma. Some died from hypothermia. One had a severe chest trauma, a major skull damage. Another one had a crack in their skull. One had their tongue removed. Two bodies had missing eyes, and one had missing eyebrows. So no one really knows what happened to these people. They were just trying to climb a mountain. They wandered from their tent in the night. They actually cut their way out of the tent and fleed their campsite. So... There is indication that it was a sudden fear-based relocation, and they all just got crushed, destroyed. Now, the Russian government seems to think it was an avalanche, but I don't know that an avalanche is so surgical as to remove people's eyes and tongue and eyebrows, and I don't know if any animal really does that either. So very strange situation, but that was number three, and we can just move right along to... Number two, which is my number two, it's again from this Mysteries of the Unexplained book, and it's not necessarily the craziest thing in the world, but it is something that people haven't heard about. Having you know used the Dotlove Pass incident, I figured, like, let's go more obscure. So as I'm getting into this book, just reading all the little things in it, there's a section called Living Animals Locked in Stone. And I was like, this is crazy. But there's a lot of these stories, and I really want to read three of them. This one's just a couple of sentences, but it gives you a template for what we're talking about. This is from Scientific American in 1853. A horned lizard that had been found alive in a block of stone so solid as to preclude the entrance of the smallest insect was sent to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington by Judge Hewton of New Mexico in 1853. The lizard lived for two days after its release and then died. So animals locked in stone. This is crazy, but there's probably eight to ten stories here of people breaking open coal and geodes and rocks, and there just is a living reptile inside. Now, here's a weird one. The last of the pterodactyls. Flying reptiles with leathery wings and long-toothed beaks died out about 100 million years ago, according to establishment scientific opinion. But in the experience of a number of startled French workmen, the last one died in the winter of 1856 in a partially completed railway tunnel before the, or between the St. Desier and Nat- Nancy lines. In the half-light of the tunnel, something monstrous stumbled forward towards them out of a great boulder of Jurassic limestone they had just split open. It fluttered its wings, croaked, and died at their feet. The creature, whose wingspan was 10 feet 7 inches, had four legs, joined by a membrane like a bat. What should have been feet were long talons, and the mouth was arrayed with sharp teeth. The skin was like black leather, thick and oily. At the nearby nearby town of Gray... The creature was immediately identified by a local student of paleontology as a pterodactyl. The rock stratum in which it had been found was consistent with the period when pterodactyls lived. In the limestone boulder that it was that had imprisoned the winged reptile for millions of years was found to contain 
a, a cavity in the form of an exact mold of the creature's body. From the Illustrated London News, 1856. So, Whoa. Yeah, they're building a railroad. They bust open some limestone. A live pterodactyl with a 10-foot wingspan jumps forward and then dies at their feet. And not only do they have the body to take back to town, but they also have the rock, which had a perfect mold of its body. So that's weird. Now, this is the last one I wanted to throw out here. So this is a longer one, but toads in the coal and occasional hell. There are three ways, broadly speaking, to account for the numerous reports of living creatures recovered from cavities in solid rock thousands of years old. The most divisive way is to declare that such things are a gross imposition, the work of fools and frauds and blah, blah, blah. A less impetuous explanation maintains that although the stone in which these creatures are found may appear solid, it actually might contain fissures through which water, air, and perhaps even nutrients may enter. The third account of such things is the most interesting, but it is not verifiable by any ordinary means. It can be illustrated, though, by a story from Tibet. In the later part of the 19th century, a venerable lama named Sitsu Perma Wangli Ripoche was making a journey in the company of several friends. One day, much to the alarm of his companions, he fell into an unusually wrathful mood and that evening insisted on making camp on a barren plain where neither firewood nor water could be found. The next morning, still in a bad humor, he obliged the party to leave their route and set out in a northerly direction that led, as far as his companions knew, to nowhere in particular. Since they held him in considerable esteem, however, they followed him without question. After several hours, they came to an enormous outcrop of rock, which Sitsu Ranpoche announced it was their task to break open. Since they had no tools but their wooden staffs, they fared poorly in this task, and already, alarmed by their leader's behavior, they withdrew some 50 to 60 feet to confer, leaving him standing by the rock. Whereupon the llama took his staff and struck the rock a single blow. It shattered and revealed within a large, repulsive-looking creature, somewhat like a salamander. Its scaly black skin stuck to the rock, panting for breath. He gently lifted the animal out of the rock and set it down on the ground in front of him. He then sat down and began to perform a certain yoga on the animal's behalf. In Tibetan, this yoga is called Fowa and is usually described as involving a transfer of consciousness. It is performed by lamas for the benefit of the dying. After a while, a narrow column of rainbow-colored light rose from the creature's head and it died. Funeral rites were performed and soon afterward the body was burned. Afterwards, Situ Ripoche explained that he had liberated the animal, which in a previous life had a connection with him from one of the occasional hells. In the Buddhist description of other realms of existence, these occasional hells lie outside the main circles of hell and are sometimes encountered in this world. Very often, they are instanced by the enclosure of a living creature in solid rock. So I don't know what the hell is going on there, but this is a whole section of the book. And I look at this kind of stuff all the time, and I'd never heard of such a thing. Now, breaking open a piece of coal and seeing a live frog, I guess that is interesting. 
you know, the horned lizard story, interesting, but the pterodactyl and this weird salamander man creature and the consciousness ritual, I thought really took the cake. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate story, you know, given the research I've been doing, you know, there's this legend, okay, that the stones in this part of Connecticut that I live are actually the bodies of ancient giants, okay? So one of these deposits of granite, which is very similar to limestone, so I found that part really fascinating. Past guest Peter Shampoo told me that limestone is always found in ancient civilizations. They always built on limestone. Many of the ancient megaliths are built on or with limestone. But these stones, pink granite actually here in Connecticut, were used to create the base of the Statue of Liberty. And they were used in the Washington Monument. They were used in Lincoln Memorial. So they're important to the country. And the Native Americans say that these two giants were fighting in a battle with the Thunderbirds. They got hit with lightning and they turned to stone and fell to the ground. Now, I thought that was all interesting, nice lore, you know, very fascinating stuff, especially when you take into account that the federal government found those, you know, well, not the federal government then, but the, you know, government found those stones best fit for their monuments. There's a gentleman by the name of Roger Spur who works at a university nearby, and he's done an experiment where he took a piece of chicken leg, you know, uncooked raw and put it in a like an aquarium tank half filled with mud and then he ran a positive current of electricity through the mud and I for a certain amount of time maybe an hour 12 hours I'm not sure but after the time was finished he took the what was a chicken leg out of the mud and it was stone I mean he smashed Mm. it with a hammer and it was like this stone material so I wonder myself, you know, maybe this stone has some preservative qualities where those beings were stuck there in stasis for all that time. And I mean, maybe our idea of organic material and stone, it's sort of narrow, you know, as far as science is concerned, not you and I, we're kind of on the fringes here looking at all the weird stuff and hopefully inspiring those scientific minds to go and take all this into account because I think it does fit into a certain understanding. It's just the science we're given in school, you know, it doesn't, you know, lend to this sort of thing. But I wonder maybe the difference between stone, plant, and flesh is not so far as science tells us. Maybe these things can sort of become like alchemy one another through different energies. Yeah, I think there's something along those lines that is true. I sometimes feel silly talking about it because anyone with an actual scientific background would be like, you are just an idiot stoner who has no idea what you're talking about. But Tesla talked about energy, frequency, and vibration. And I think that if you get into alchemy, there is some truth to the transmutation of lead into gold and other elements into other things. So I'm open to the idea that with certain frequencies, you can probably turn certain things to stone. There was a recent episode of Joe Rogan where he had Post Malone on, and they tell a story of a famous UFO encounter from Russia 
where the soldiers, I believe, shot down the craft. And as they approached it, they got hit with a brilliant light and they were turned to stone. And I think a couple of them survived with only like, you know, they were just injured. But it seems possible. There's other people out there who think that ancient mine shafts are actually ancient trees that you look at the walls and it looks like the rings of a tree. Then there's the devil's backbone kind of thing where people think that Titans are actually the mountains. It gets really weird with that mud flood stuff. And it does go to a level where it's like, are you just trying to come up with the most outrageous story or is there anything valid to what you're saying? I don't like that realm of things. It just seems too unscientific. Oh, this mountain looks like a giant's face. Therefore, Biblical giants are real. And it's like, what is this based on? I don't know. But I think there's something in there that makes some sense. All these stories in this book are uh, reptiles and amphibians. So is there something about their qualities that in certain extremely rare cases, they can get kept into, like you say, some kind of stasis in rock? We know that there are amphibians and reptiles that can be frozen and thawed back out i don't know how long they can be frozen but life is weird and i think it's weirder than we know and there's something to the electrical systems of the body and vibration plays a role and who knows everything's supposed to be apparently mostly empty space anyway right I think, yeah, I think you're on to it with the matter of frequency. I think with the right frequency, you can spontaneously combust or you can turn to stone. You know, I think it's all a matter of frequency. And yeah, there's so much that our, you know, academic scientists sort of leave out when you really start to look through all this stuff. I mean, you can't hold that validity as strongly but i do appreciate the attempt at logic in this seemingly illogical realm because we do need some solid ground to stand on in order to make sense of it all but i teased everybody with the killer ufo story i want to read one of those but let's see where is it let me cue that one up All right, I got it. So I don't want to leave people hanging with the killer UFO stuff. We were on a nice flow. Everything was bleeding one into another. This might be an abrupt turn left, folks, but I think it's worth reading. Yes, uh, my number one's an abrupt turn anyway, so let's cool. just zigzag all over the place. Well, I think this one's appropriate. It's either this one or the killer Florida ape skunk ape and i don't know if you want those stories <laughs> you've only been in florida for so long we don't want to scare you out right away but who knows maybe that'll entice you i mean are you planning any cryptid hunts now that you're down there near the everglades not necessarily i think the thing that i'm most interested in this new environment is the over a hundred different natural springs that are all over the place and if you heard the interviews with Analog, we talked about the importance of radium. He's done some crazy research on radium. And regardless of that, the structured water stuff is super interesting. The earth seems to produce healing qualities of water. Some of those old myths and legends of the early settlers healing all kinds of stuff just by getting in the earth's natural springs. I'm compelled by that. And 
if anyone were to just YouTube top 10, 20 springs in Florida, you'll see these people touring these really pristine environments and there's not a trailer to be seen. You know, Florida gets a bad rap, but there's so many beautiful, pristine outdoor things to check out. And uh, once the kids get a little older, I can get out of this house and get myself some time to myself. It would be checking those places out. Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Narco Longo, a Florida guy himself, he shared with me a, a video of the springs just pumping out hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water every you know hour. So it's yeah. totally abundant, way different than the media shows us this sort of, you know, the lowest, you know, of the, well, I guess it's now known as the Florida man, but yeah, I don't know how true that is. So yeah. here's my story. Our final, my final 40 in event because oftentimes UFOs are sort of off in the distance. They either pick you up and scoop you up or you just kind of see them fly by. But these stories are a little rarer. The ones where UFOs actually, you know, end up taking people's lives, unfortunately. So here we go. The night of August 19th, 1962 was a fearful one for Rivialino do Oela Mafra and his three sons. Their home in the small town of Duas Pantes in the state of Minas Gerais, Brazil, had been under siege by mysterious forces for several hours. All four persons had been awakened by the sound of heavy footsteps and shadows having human shape floating through the house. Voices from nowhere shouted threats at them, including warnings that Rivellino would be soon murdered. Rivellino and his sons waited out the night, but morning brought no relief from the terror. The climax of the events was described later to the police by Rivellino's oldest son, 12-year-old Raimundo. In the morning, still afraid, I had the courage to go outside to get my father's horse, but then I sighted two balls floating in midair side by side, about a foot apart, and three feet off the ground. They were big. One of them was black, with a kind of irregular antenna-like extension and a small tail. The other was black and white with the same outlines. Both emitted a humming sound and flickering through an opening like a firefly. I called my father out of the house. He walked towards the objects and stopped about two yards away. At that moment, the two big balls emerged. The two big balls merged into each other. There was only one now, bigger in size, raising dust from the ground and discharging a smoke which darkened the sky. With strange noises, that big ball crept slowly towards my father. I saw him enveloped by the yellow smoke and disappear inside it. I ran after him into the yellow clouds which had an acrid smell. I saw nothing, only that yellow mist around me. I yelled for my father, but there was no answer. Everything was silent again. Then the yellow smoke dissolved. The balls were gone. My father was gone. I want my father back. But this, his father never returned. Raimundo was subjected to intensive questioning by Lieutenant Wilson Lisboa, local chief of police, and by Father Jose Avila Garcia, a local priest. Despite their doubts about Raimundo's story, neither was able to find any evidence to disprove his story or implicate the boy and his two brothers in any foul play. Raimundo was examined by a psychiatrist, Dr. Joan Antumes de Oliveira, 
who later told reporters, I do not wish to discuss the case further. The facts are beyond my competence, but I can tell you the boy is normal and he is telling what he thinks is the truth. Investigations turned up corroborating evidence for Raimundo's story. Antonio Rocha, a postal worker, said he had seen two ball-shaped UFOs near Raimundo's house. A local physician, Dr. Giovanni Piera, reported a disc-shaped UFO disc-shaped, sorry, UFO in the area on the day of Rivellino's disappearance. So, yeah, there's a case. Unfortunately, we're hearing it from the son who lost his father. Very sad, tragic, but it does happen. There are stories like that where UFOs take people away, never to be seen again. Yes, there are the Travis Waltons who, you know, end up coming back a few days later or uh, other examples, Betty and Barney Hill, right, or the first that were reported to be abducted. But, yeah, this is very strange. I mean, who knows? Maybe they planned on sending him back and something failed along the way. Yeah, it reminds me of a couple of stories from... Whitley Strieber's most recent book, Them, that aren't totally fresh in my mind, but it's tragic to lose anyone close to you, a parent or a child, and imagine losing someone in a paranormal-ish way where the things that happen, people don't even believe can happen, and you have to deal with that for your entire life. I mean, that's like a mental anguish that I can't imagine. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very tough thing to live with I'm sure I mean in a small way you understood that feeling when you saw what you saw so long ago when you were a kid and your parents wouldn't you know wrap their heads around it but yeah obviously that situation carried less weight than losing a father but yeah I think you know killer UFOs it's something that we don't want to talk about but given the government the government's sort of unveiling this soft very you know sort of muted unveiling of ufos it seems like they're okay with disclosing ufos people have this hollywood image of ufos they want to meet an alien but i don't know that we want to meet these aliens (laughs) no i think there's something more multi-dimensional rather than something from a foreign planet and or from inside the earth but there seems to be qualities of their equipment, their crafts that do not jive with us. They're not totally compatible. And sometimes I think these incidents are accidents, not always, of course, but sometimes I think it's just like the radiation of being too close to one of these things, or they put you back in the wrong way. Nick Redfern has a book that's just full of encounters. I believe it's called close encounters of the fatal kind, but page after page of stories where someone died in a UFO encounter. It's not the most common aspect or box to check in these, but it happens enough to fill a book. Right. Well, and Nick is proficient at covering every angle of the UFO topic. I got to get him on this show sometime. He's great. But we're about at that time, Greg. We got time for your last pick here. You said that this would be your number one no matter what. So I imagine this is a story that is close to home or important to you. Tell us about it. Yeah, it is one of my favorites. I used number two out of that book, The Living Animals in Stone, because it's so bizarre and something most people probably haven't heard of. My number one story 
I think at least 50 percent have probably heard it, especially if you've listened to me for a long time. It's the Green Children of Woolpit story. And this is a story from a village called Woolpit in Suffolk, England. It's from the 12th century during the reign of King Stephen, which may or may not be relevant. But this is from the Wikipedia page. It was just the nicest, tightest summary I could find. But two children were found in this village. They were brother and sister, and they were generally normal in appearance, except for the green color of their skin. They spoke in an unknown language and would eat only raw, broad beans, whatever a broad bean is. Eventually, they learned to eat other food and lost their green color. But the boy was sickly and died soon after they were found. His sister was baptized. The girl adjusted to her new life, but she was considered to be very wanton, which I had to look up, means sexually unrestrained and imprudent. She learned to speak English and also married someone in the village eventually. The girl explained that she and her brother were tending to sheep when they heard the sound of bells and they followed them through a tunnel system until they reached the surface. She said they come from a land where the sun never shone and the light was like twilight. According to one version of the story, she said that everything there was green. According to another, she said it was called St. Martin's Land. That's the one I'm most familiar with, her referring to this as St. Martin's Land. I love this story because it's inner earth beans. They're green. A lot of people try to dismiss this story as these kids were sick or malnourished, but they spoke a different language. That's kind of a key element. They were strange kids who would only eat raw beans. They didn't recognize a lot of things that they were presented with as food. And then the fact that as weird as this is, she eventually learned English and then was able to talk about where she came from. It's fascinating to me. The fact that she says light was like twilight, that is a common trope of the inner worlds, that there is some kind of inner light source, a bioluminescence, So the fact that this story from the 1100s has that detail, I mean, it blows my mind. To take it a step further, so I like the fact that it's an inner earth story. I consider, when I try to make sense of this, that there is just a civilization down there somewhere underneath Suffolk, England, and these kids just got curious about a sound they heard and wandered off to the surface. The Moho layer, I think it's Moho or Soho, I think it's Moho, layer of the earth, it's an abbreviation for a long scientific name, is a layer of the earth that's supposed to be about 12 miles down and very porous. And if they came from a layer in the earth, I would think it was there. 12 miles, very difficult for two children to make their way through, but could it have happened one time? I would say possibly. And the boy died. I mean, they arrived very sick and like they had been on a journey. So it could be multidimensional or it could literally just be an inner earth civilization that stays away from the surface world. But I interviewed this guy, Duncan Lunan, probably five years ago or so. He wrote this book called Children from the Sky, a speculative interpretation of a medieval mystery. And this is no small book. It's over 500 pages, and he goes deep. I don't like his conclusions because it's that they came from the sky. I prefer the story for them coming in the earth. I think it's more interesting. But this is the description. This is from the book's description where 
It says, Lunin has located the places in the story and traced the people who turn out to be real, though mysterious and very highly connected. The incident at Woolpit was one of a series of linked sites and seems to have been anticipated by the authorities of the time. Lunin traces the green girl, traces her descendants to the present day, and investigates strange things happening in the sky and other events relating to her, quote, arrival. It suggests that in medieval times there might have been mass abductions from Earth by extraterrestrials for experimental purposes with the knowledge if they with the knowledge, if not the agreement, of some of the terrestrial authorities. If so, Lunin suggests the X-Files are set in the wrong century. So what I like about his book is all the intense detail and investigative journalism that he does. And the fact that he finds anomalies in the sky, reports of you know what you might consider UFOs at a deep distance, he, he talks about some strange behavior of King Stephen and his court. I believe King Stephen actually came to meet this girl. This was five or six years ago. It's not the freshest in my mind. I just remember the feeling that it was like really well-researched, and there's a lot of extra details. And quite possibly, we all know the story of Eisenhower and the Greys making some secret arrangement. What if Beans visited King Stephen in England and were like, hey, we can give you some technology or tell you the secrets of the universe. We're going to take some people. And through this exchange, this program, maybe a couple kids didn't make it back up onto the ship and they left a couple of their kind. Or maybe it was an agreement. Maybe King Stephen's like, you leave me a couple of your people that you don't care about and you can take some of mine. And maybe it was an exchange. It's possible to me. I think there are beings out there that can make these agreements. I Again, I prefer the story that they just wandered up from a uh, maybe another dimension beneath the earth or some kind of parallel reality or just real physical civilization down there. But I cannot discount this really great book that I may not prefer its conclusion, but the research he did shows that this girl is real and that something actually happened at this time. And that to me is enough. Uh, validation to make me happy and to keep it as really my number one story of all time. Agreed. Agreed. I, and I think I would agree with your take on it, that it makes more sense, at least from their story, even that they came from underground given I haven't read Duncan's book, but I do like the idea that the X-Files was, is supposed to be taking place in a different time period. I think the further back you look, whether it's lore, myth, legends, whatever we want to call it, I think there's so much more truth in some of those stories than there are the average thing you see on television. But Greg, thank you for joining me for this list of 40 events and occurrences, phenomena. I think we covered some some interesting ground and definitely... I think brought up some ideas that people hadn't heard before, especially the pterodactyl popping out of a limestone egg. I mean, that's crazy. So obviously folks go to the HiresideChats.com, become a plus member like me and support the show, get the whole shebang and get two hours. But uh, Greg, what else you got in store? Any shows you want to plug, like guests that are coming up next? Can you tell us, or would you rather have people check out the episodes that are out now? Ed Calderon, Lon Strickler, some recent episodes. 
Yeah, those are some recent ones. I'd say of the things I've recorded recently, the one that might be the most polarizing or interesting is Raw Egg Nationalist. For people who might know that name from his anonymous Twitter handle, he thinks we can save the world by slogging raw eggs and being the strong men we were meant to be. It's a little little on the right side of the spectrum, but I really don't care. I consider myself outside of the spectrum, but I'll talk to people as long as they're interesting. And that's going to be a pretty wild one. It comes out maybe in 10 days or so, but I appreciate you having me on and this suggestion. It's a lot more interesting than just going over the David Grush claims or raising our fist to the sky about all the trans kids. I mean, this is just a lot more interesting than all the discourse that we could have had that other podcasts are having. It's everywhere you look, the same five topics. And this got us out of the groove and I enjoyed it. Agreed. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I thought you would enjoy the the format and that's why I go back to your show every week because you're always consistently bringing something unique to the table as you did today with the pterodactyl and the, the frog. I mean, the monk hitting the stone with one blow and unleashing some sort of creature. But yeah, this is awesome. Folks, please check the links in the description and check out the Higher Side Chats if you haven't already. Thank you for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. And that was our conversation with Greg Carlwood. Always a pleasure to talk to him. He is someone, as I said, has inspired me to do this podcast. His show, I listened to it, you know, early into my venture into listening to podcasts and only took me one or two episodes to realize like, wow, this is incredible stuff. So I started supporting his podcast. I said, Sam's podcast back when he even had a Patreon. Now I support him on Rockfin. And I supported the Grimerica show. And I've always thought, you know, something about that karma helped uh, smooth, <laughs> smooth the gears, so to speak, and made my transition from my previous occupation to this one a whole lot easier. Um, but yeah, I... I owe it all to the podcast that came before me in that way Uh, so it's always a pleasure to have greg on his show is fantastic if you haven't heard of it before i'm honestly surprised but go and listen to it the higher side chats he's got his own website thehiresidechats.com and if you sign up to be a plus member not only will you join me in the ranks of plus members but you'll also get uh two hours of each show instead of just one and you want that second hour you really do but uh, speaking of support support this podcast i'd love to give a shout out to uh, a bunch of new supporters but we only got one so i'm going to give him a shout out and i'm very excited about him because he comes all the way from scandinavia gentleman from Sweden who shared some really interesting information with us on the Patreon. So I'm going to read his comment. And I also have some Charles Fort quotes to read. So stick around for the end of the outro to hear all of the Charles Fort 
quotes, but our new friend Vinithor, which incredibly badass name. You basically just took the name Vinny and combined it with the name Thor. Vinithor. I mean, could you have a bat more badass name? <laughs> so he I think was listening to our latest episode with JJ Vance or maybe another episode uh, possibly the one with Christopher McIntosh or really I mean a number of different interviews we've had recently that have touched on this subject so I'll read his comments here just wanted to let you know that the Vikings did not traverse the great step to reach Japan they are unrelated to the Ainu Viking is a profession not an ethnicity the Vikings who traveled eastward were called Varingian. It was only the West Sailing Raiders that were called Vikings. Sailing from Denmark, Western Sweden, Norway, and targeting England, France, Belgium, and the Mediterranean Islands, etc. That's his first comment. Second comment, you're correct about Ukraine. It was once considered part of Sweden. In the 1200s, Sweden was called Svitjod Hin Mikla in the Old Norse language and included Rusaland, Gardarika, and Kiven Rus. This meant that Eastern Swedes, and in particular Goths, Utar from Gotland and the Gothic Sea, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's a Gothic Sea. Maybe there is. No, I don't think there is. And the Gothic lands in Sweden controlled most of the trade towards the east, all the way to the Black Sea, but not to the Caspian Sea. They ran into the Khazars, which they defeated about a century later. At that point, the Varingian nobility had become Slavo-Nordic. Sweden's grip on ancient Russia-Ukraine, i.e. Sweden the Great, ceased to exist when the Mongols sacked Kiev in 1240. Kiev. Game over. This was Crusader times. It took a long time to figure out how to beat the Mongols. Finally, I must add that the Swedish, Scandinavian, Iron Age, and Bronze Age are far more interesting than the Viking Age. In these older times, there was a strong connection between the Swedish Goths and the Scythians, Sarmatians, the Scythians slash Sarmatians, I don't know how you say that word. Uh, Nordic-style woodworking was found in a trading post in the Lulan Kingdom from uh, circa 400 AD, 300 years before the Viking Age. For more information, Google for the name Sven Heden. So yeah, I'm not surprised that the Iron and Bronze Age are far more interesting than the Viking Age. I'll, I'll take you on that, Minithor. Uh, I really appreciate your comments. I love when people reach out directly, especially when they do it with the Patreon. And it was cool to see some Cronin in the Patreon for uh, the first time so shout out to all our listeners in Sweden I hope you like my pronunciation maybe you hate it <laughs> either way um, yeah I'm trying to 
look here and see what other ep oh this is what it is so speaking of the older times being more interesting i just read uh saga ufo reports article by richard mooney titled the celestial horizons of the ancients which describes how maps sort of uh show that humans were more sophisticated at least in map making the further back we look in time and uh, more recently in medieval times their maps were very uh, narrow and centered around the mediterranean so yeah if you're interested in that topic go and support on patreon on rockman and check out that video uh, i narrated the article and added some clips and slides and things like that so check it out let me know what you think if you like it i'll do more stuff like that uh, but shout out to vinathor i appreciate you i appreciate your badass name i was reading a thor comic book last week so thor is on the mind but anyways yeah i definitely enjoy researching scandinavian culture european culture history as it connects to a lot of the hidden history around here in new england so yeah a lot of fascinating stuff we talked a little bit about that with greg today when i mentioned the stone giants and if you like that look forward to our next conversation with uh, next guest topher gardner who's returning to the show if you haven't listened to his interview previous interview i did with him go back and check that out now and look forward to that next episode where we get into some stuff related to Greg's story about the pterodactyl coming out of the limestone. Because, I mean, if that wasn't a title, you know, a, a topic to get the title of the podcast, I don't know what else was. That was absolutely mind-blowing. That was a great story. I'm so glad Greg shared it. But, uh, yeah, really awesome stuff. I hope we can get more people commenting like Vinathor, you know maybe even some 40 and reports of their own if you've experienced anything that could be categorized as a 40 event or occurrence reach out sign up for the patreon the Substack, the rockfin get in touch send me an email mfticpodcast at gmail.com if you don't have any money to support but you want to support you want to get in touch with the bonus content then just send me a message and i'll give you a three-month trial to our Substack. um but yeah we've got a lot going on a lot coming up next uh, shout out to all of our patrons we're at few more than what we were when i first started this goal so we're getting somewhere, but we still are a long ways away from 250 patrons. That's our next goal. So sign up now for the Patreon so we could reach that 250 goal level. Um, and I'm going to be doing in-person interviews with people that you might not expect me to interview. People who might not necessarily sit down at a computer for an interview. So... It's going to be interesting times, interesting times. Anyways, that's all for the support section of the show. All the links in the description will guide you to the correct places to support the show. Whether you want to send a one-time donation, you can send that on Venmo at Mystic Mark or PayPal at Mystic Mark. You can also reach out on Ko-Fi 
and support us there. I've got a bunch of PDFs available that I've written that you can purchase, and I've got all sorts of merch items from clothing to handmade necklaces made by yours truly. Uh, I was a crystal wire wrapper in a past life, so yeah, that's something you can also attain from me to support the show. Um, And yeah, shout out to the Hit Kit. Pick up a Hit Kit, use the promo code CRAZY and save 15% off at checkout. And I mean, if you haven't heard me talk about the Hit Kit before, then you must be here for the first time. I love the hit kit I use my hit kit every day it's a very convenient way to keep track of your lighter and whatever you happen to be smoking or lighting on fire with that lighter whether it's marijuana or tobacco or some kind of combination of the two Uh, get a hit kit you can even get a custom design you can get a QR code that tells people about a business you can even link that QR code to a video a prank video that you then use to prank your friends like Garrett did to me in the last episode. So go back and listen to that outro if you missed it where we got pranked on the podcast live during the recording. So you can't fake that kind of stuff, folks. And I wouldn't do that to you on a truth-oriented podcast. We are truth first, comedy second, okay? We're getting to the bottom of this stuff. So shout out to the Hit Kit shout out to garrett he's a true g uh, and he is working on some cool stuff so go and check it out the hit kit on instagram or hitkit.us wherever you use the internet all right now to the part where i said i would read something from charles fort So Charles Fort, he has a few quotes here in this book that was written by uh, Damon Knight, titled Charles Fort, Prophet of the Unexplained. You heard me read a sample from it in the intro, and now I'm going to read a few quotes directly from Charles Fort. Witchcraft always has a hard time until it becomes established and changes its name. I think we're property. If the gods send worms, that would be kind. If we were robins. I conceive of nothing in religion, science, or philosophy that is more than the proper thing to wear for a while. The interpretations will be mine, but the data will be for anybody to form his own opinions on. If our existence is an organism in which all phenomena are continuous, dreams cannot be utterly different in the view of continuity from occurrences that are said to be real. And I'll leave you with that, folks. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are, in the now. So, uh, We've had a good couple of weeks of shows. You know? Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts sometimes. <laughs> he's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. You can call uh, me Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's... It's a beautiful day to be alive. Motherfuckers. It's a beautiful day. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be alive. That's all I gotta say. I don't think it's about money. I think they have so much. It's...
so much farther. There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the grade or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you mastered light. Cause it's faster than a blink. When it's a bastard, latch to the clank, clang. The money don't mean a damn thing. Think happiness ain't coming from the bank, dang. I'm out here daydreaming. The spirit's the egg, the self is the semen. Uh, and that's cause life is the child. And it takes a village to give it the illest style. So, if your family think you crazy, mm, and you ain't got a village, know you always got a place here. I'm calm, kick it, we chillin'. I'm waking up for the first time. Crusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind. Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine. Feel it on my skin like it's been sometimes. Sometimes depression got me flaking like Sisyphus. Others got me messing with mania like Icarus. And meditation helps with the sickness. Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't. There's more power in spring flowers. The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured. Blurred lines between reality and fiction. And some politicians get dirtier than dishes. But for a minute, just forget about the government. I'm looking at you and I and where the love went. Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics. Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't. And your family think you crazy. Yeah. And you ain't got a village. I know you always got a place here. Come kick it, we chillin', yeah. I'm a conspiracy boy. I'm a conspiracy boy.